Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me, the final week before Christmas, is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Flood Security. So, Simon, here we are coming up to Christmas. We had an interest rate rise this week, and we also had news from the Federal Reserve. So how did that go down in the markets uh, as of today, which is uh, Friday we're talking? Yeah, I, I mean, overall, this has been a challenging week for markets. I mean, we've certainly seen a pickup in volatility. I mean, the numbers as they stand, certainly for the first four days of the week, uh, investment companies were actually down about 1%. They were actually down nearer to 2% the first three days, but we saw a bit of a bounce back on Thursday. And that 1% fall represents an underperformance against the wider UK market. It's probably down about 0.6%. But certainly the markets are a lot more choppy than you would normally expect at this time of the year. And we can see that in the sector average discounts for investment trusts as well. So they've swung between about 2.3% and 3.5% so far this week. But clearly, as you say, a lot of focus on what's been going on in terms of the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England. I mean, inflation is something that we've talked about pretty much every week this year. And I think it's quite telling that the word transitory seems to have been dropped from the commentary around inflation. And this week, the US Federal Reserve, some of the officials made it clear that they expect three interest rate hikes next year. Well, at the same time, the Bank of England, actually against probably expectations, raised the the base rate from 0.1% to 0.25%. And that was the first increase in more than three years. But that's against a backdrop of inflation rising to more than 5% in the UK. And at the same time, UK employment levels kind of uh, booming despite the end of the furlough scheme. But lest we forget as well, a lot of attention on Omicron and what it might mean to the markets, as we talked about last week, still many unanswered questions. But obviously in the UK, we are seeing the number of uh, cases, recorded cases, uh, rocket, and there is clearly a lot of disruption to everyday life. So big emphasis on the booster campaign, although a number of business leaders have come out and suggested that we are now faced with a lockdown by stealth. Yeah, so that doesn't all sound particularly good news. It is true. The government's also uh, got a problem having lost this by-election this week and having a biggest revolt in this parliament for many years by uh, Tory backbench MPs. So the general media headlines are not very good, but let's uh, keep this in context. It has been a reasonable year for investors. The equity markets are up. The US market is uh, dominated yet again. But the sort of gap in performance between investment trusts and uh, the UK all share index uh, has widened again as well a little bit, partly because of those discount movements, I guess. I've been tracking it over the year, and there was a point when it got to about 5%, the differential in return between the UK market and the investment trust index. And it came into about 2% and now gone out again. Is, am I roughly right around that? Uh, those numbers? Yeah, that's correct. So the data as at the close of Thursday, the investment company sector is up 11.4%, and that compares to a rise of 15.8% for the FTSE all share. So probably about 4.5% or so behind. Okay, so let's move on and talk about what we've learned this week from uh, investment trusts in this final week of the investment trust podcast, I should say, because we're going to be uh, taking a break next week because it will be Christmas. Let's talk about uh, GCP Student Living. Ticker Diggs, D-I-G-S, which I'm afraid we're going to be saying goodbye to that quite soon. Yes, that's right. And, and obviously, we've talked about this one on a number of occasions. But basically, this week, we've learned that all the necessary permissions had come through. 
And there was an AGM and the High Court of Justice had sanctioned the scheme of arrangement. So basically, GCB Student Living is now all clear to be acquired. The suspension of trading in its shares is expected to take place on Monday, the 20th of December. And actually, the last day of dealings will be on Friday, the 17th. Yeah, so just remind us who is making the acquisition. It's by an outfit called Gemini Jersey, but I think there are different parties involved in that. So it's been a long-standing story. I think this one originally cropped up in the middle of the year, um, and it has taken a number of months to kind of bring it to fruition. But yes, I, I suspect shareholders will be glad that this is all done and dusted by the end of the year. I mean, it is unusual, as we said, for a trust like this to be uh, taken out by a group of private investors. As a result, of course, it means that uh, GCP Student Living is one of the uh, better performers of the year. I've noticed that its share price is up uh, 48% so far this year. So uh, uh, the shareholders, I guess, will be reasonably happy with that. But of course, they've lost an investment trust that they were owning for other reasons. Let's move on and talk about another interesting development then. We learned this week something about Greencoat Renewables and Greencoat UK Wind. These are two trusts that are managed by uh, Greencoat Capital, which has been very successful in uh, launching and raising money for these uh, two trusts. But uh, what's the news there? Yeah, this was an interesting development. So Schroeder's came out, acknowledged that there'd been some media speculation and announced or admitted that they were considering a potential acquisition of a stake in Greencoat Capital. Um, It's obviously not a done deal by any stretch. And according to media reports, at least, that the Schroeder's are interested in a 75% stake in Greencoat Capital uh, for which they're prepared to pay $360 million. But that, as I say, is a, a media report. The boards of Greencoat Renewables and Greencoat UK Wind both came out and noted this development, but made it clear that they were confident that should the transaction proceed, it wouldn't impact on the role of Greencoat Capital as the investment manager. Right. So what do you think is the thinking here? I mean, Greencoat, as we've said, has been uh, very successful. I mean, those two trusts both raise a lot of money. How big are those two trusts now? And uh, presumably Schroeder's are thinking that they can uh, take this to another level in in some way. Would that be a a fair conclusion? It's a really good question. I mean, just to put some numbers around this, Schroeder's are responsible for assets under management, I think about 720 billion or certainly were at the end of September. So it's a reasonable big book of business. The numbers I've got for Greencoat Capital, I think is about 6 billion of assets under management. So you could ask the question, well, why are they too bothered about something that represents less than 1% of their book? But I think it's precisely because of the specialist nature of Greencoat Capital that makes it attractive. So they're focused on European renewables. They've obviously been going a number of years. They have a track record. They have these two listed investment companies. Greencoat UK Wind has assets of around about four billion pounds now. So that's seen substantial growth. Uh, Greencoat Renewables, that's uh, a little bit further behind. That's probably around about a billion or so in terms of assets, but you know, two substantial vehicles. But I think it's the potential that some of these mainstream investment managers are seeing in these more alternative asset class specialists. And we have seen other deals as well. Gravis Capital, who are responsible for GCP, an outfit called Oryx Corporation took a 70% stake in them about a year or so ago. Uh, we've also seen other deals in the in the investment management sector. I mean, we talked last week about Majedi and Lion Trust and that potential acquisition. Traders have also been involved in uh, acquiring a part of River and Mercantile's business, their solutions business. So there does seem to be quite a few deals going on within the investment management industry in general. 
part of that, I think, is this idea of trying to get this exposure to those kind of high growth, those decent margin business that the alternative asset classes uh, provide. And also because a lot of these investment managers are, are, are washed with cash, to be perfectly honest. I mean, it has been a number of very good years for investment managers. So I think a number of them are quite happy to deploy some of that capital. So do you think, though, that does it mean that they will be possibly looking to launch more investment trusts or more likely they're going to try and replicate some of these uh, trust mandates in other forms of fund? What do you think their, their thinking there would be? Or is it just a question of racking up the uh, the marketing or reaching, you know, selling this, these funds to more of their clients? What do you think uh, would be the thinking there? I mean, I'm sure Schroeder's have got a careful strategy worked out, you know, and should this come to pass, I'm sure they will look to grow the business, grow the book. I mean, the issue that they would obviously have is that the underlying assets of renewables in general tend to be illiquid. And so to put that in an, in an open-ended fund, a usage structure, kind of, you know, the funds that are quite prevalent, certainly across the Schroeder's platform, that would be a difficult thing to do. And that's why uh, we have seen such growth in the investment company sector for these less liquid or illiquid asset classes. So it'd be interesting to see what they do with it, though it clearly is a growth area. I mean, renewable energy infrastructure is not going away the wind is in its sails, to use a, a bit of a pun, and, and clearly Schroeder's and one suspects other investment managers in general will be looking at these kind of asset classes quite closely. Yes. And I noticed this week, for example, or last week it was actually, but uh, the IOC did their annual poll of what they expect the top performing sectors to be in 2022. And guess what came top of the list? It was renewable energy infrastructure was the, was the one that the fund managers who completed this poll thought would be the one with the best prospect. So it is a hot area pardon the pun, and um, we'll have to see how they proceed with that. But it does rather suggest to me that there might be you know, more issuance coming our way in, in the new year. Do you think that's uh, that's likely in this particular area? I mean, if you look at the, the ratings across the renewable energy infrastructure space, I mean, many of them are trading on premiums uh, and have done so consistently, as you know. Um, so new issuance or further issuance is highly likely, one suspects. However, I think there is an issue or a very careful consideration how that new capital might be deployed. That, to me, seems to be the real issue. The crop, It's all very well raising capital, but if you can't get that money to work at a return that adds to your existing portfolio, then it becomes a difficult argument to make. Yes, and just finally, before we move on from this subject, in terms of the performance, I mean, Greencoat have been, well, I think we're almost the first into this uh, field in terms of launching trusts in this area, certainly Greencoat UK Wind, I think, uh, dates back at least a decade or so. And how has their performance actually been against their target over that period? Yeah, so I've got their five-year share price return in front of me, and they're up 50% over that period. And I can't tell you off the top of my head exactly what their targeted annualised return, but I would imagine most of these kind of renewable energy infrastructure tend to be in that kind of 8 to 10% range. So that would seem to be broadly in line. Okay, so we'll move on and we'll talk about the goings-on at Gresham House Strategic. Perhaps you might quickly remind us what's been going on there. That's uh, ticker GHS. There's a bit of, uh, certainly some housekeeping involved here, but uh, tell us what's been going on. Again, this is one that we've talked about quite a lot over the last few months, but effectively Gresham House Strategic has uh, changed manager. It's moved to Harwood as part of that and following quite a strong voice from the existing shareholder base. They decided to go into a managed wind-down mode which shareholders approved. And as part of that, there's an initial return of capital of up to £25 million. So what's happened this week is that shareholders have approved that managed wind down and approved what's called a B-share scheme that allows just over £10 million to be returned to shareholders, in addition to which there will be a tender offer for the best part of £15 million. And we'll find out the result of that in the early part of next week. I think it's a reasonable assumption that that will be uh, fully tendered. 
And that represents quite a significant return of capital to Gresham House. I've got them on a market cap at the moment of about just short of £50 million. So these are quite substantial returns of capital. And thereafter, there's a 24-month period of managed wind-down. Okay, so that one seems to be, uh, well, moving forward and will eventually draw to a close. Let's move on then and talk about Triple Point Social Housing REIT. That ticker there is SOHO. We've talked a lot about Civitas having issues to deal with concerning the regulator and, uh, in their case, a short seller. But uh, Triple Point Social Housing has same same sector. What's the, the news from them this week? So it was another development very similar to the ones that we've seen in this area over the last few years, to be honest. And that was a publication of a regulatory notice from the regulator of social housing in relation to an outfit called Parasol Homes. Now, Parasol Homes were deemed non-compliant with regards to elements of the governance and financial viability standard. Why is it relevant? Well, Triple Point Social Housing REIT has 38 assets leased to Parasol. Uh, which had an aggregate value of about £60 million at the end of September. So it represents 10% of Triple Point Social Housing's current portfolio value and about 10% of its rent roll, so not insignificant. However, Triple Point Social Housing acknowledged that uh, Paracel continues to pay its rent. And to date, I think over 98% of the rent due for the year has been paid. Um, And they've also uh, have a very established relationship with Paracel and in regular dialogue. So the bottom line is that there's no material impact on the value of the fund's property portfolio expected as a result of this. Okay, so this is an issue which has been hanging over the sector, as you say, for uh, several months now. The underlying issue here is the fact that the regulator is not happy with the arrangements that the companies like Parasol House or uh, housing associations have with these uh, social housing trusts. But the companies say that there's nothing to worry about. It's all business as normal. Things are going ahead. And there's no reason, therefore, to take this as a sell signal, if you like. But the market is still giving these trusts a discount, right? They're trading at a discount. Uh, So there's still some work to do if these trusts are to restore the confidence of investors. Would I be right about that, given that they used to trade at a premium? No, I think that's a fair comment. I think the market is jittery about these kind of developments. And you saw that this week. So, um, you know, just prior to this announcement, we had... Uh, triple point social housing trading between about 97 98p that was derated we saw the share price soften following this announcement so it kind of bounced off somewhere between 93 and 94p so in terms of the discounts on that fund which is about 11% and civitas uh, probably about a 12% discount at the moment these both represents far wider discounts than the average that they've seen over the previous 12 months they've probably broadly traded on you know 1% discount during that time so i think there is a question mark over this particular asset class. And I suspect, given the direction of travel, we're going to see more announcements of a similar nature from the the regulator. That's clearly they're reviewing all these housing associations. That's what their mandate is. And clearly, you know, to your point, there are quite a few that don't fit the required, as they put it, the financial viability standard. So I think we'll have to see how this one develops. You can look at these areas and you can see the discounts. Um, from a yield point of view, we've got Civitas at the moment on a, on a historic basis yielding just short of 6%. And we've got triple point social housing on about 5.6%. So these are quite high yields in the context of the wider property sector. But, you know, there is a reason for that. So I think more questions to be answered as we go into 2022. 
So I think the big unknown really is, okay, so the regulator is unhappy, but what is the regulator going to do? Or what is he going to require these uh, housing associations to do in order to rectify the concerns that they've raised? And that remains something to be determined, as you say. So in the meantime, you can either take the view that this is a good opportunity to buy into this uh, particular sector, if there's actually nothing really to worry about in the medium to longer term, or you might say it's a continuing cause for concern that the trusts have to somehow manage that process. Okay, so let's talk on a little bit about fundraising. We haven't got that much this week to talk about. We've reached the end of the year as far as that's concerned. But first of all, tell us what BH Macro are proposing to do. BH Macro came out this week and announced that they would look to, or they may issue sterling shares at a price of £37.20p until midday on the 17th of December. That's Friday, so we haven't seen the results of that. But that share price reflected a 9% premium to the estimated NAV as at the 10th of December. So why would they do that? Well, BH Macro has actually been trading consistently on a, on a premium now for some time. And so this is one way, at least, of building up a book of demand and looking to issue shares to, to meet that. I suspect there is a, a desire to keep an eye on the premium, not to allow it to become too great, because certainly if you look at an asset class that would look to return high single-digit returns to have it trading on a, on a 9-10% premium, might put certain investors off or even encourage those existing investors to to maybe take some money off the table. So I suspect that's what's going on there. I guess I can't let this pass without referring back, though, to this issue about the fees that BH Macro are charging, which was earlier in this year. They basically said to the board that you must pay us... uh, 2% 2% per annum rather than 1% per annum, or we're going to you know, disappear. And the shares went to a discount. People weren't very happy about that. And some investors, so they approved the changes, resulting in the merger of the two Brevin Howard funds that have this absolute return strategy. But uh, they went to a discount for a while, but they've, that, as you say, that's disappeared. So basically, that issue is sort of dead and buried. And uh, Brevin Howard have won that one, have they not? Yeah, I think that would be a reasonable interpretation. So it's got a sterling line, a US dollar line, it's worth noting, and they're both trading on a significant premium. I mean, in aggregate, they've got over a billion pounds market cap. So it's a significant size fund. They're issuing shares and clearly there is demand. I mean, it's been a quiet year in NAV terms in terms of its performance, but there has been a bit of volatility on that share price. So they've been out to a discount of about 5% at one stage this year, but equally they've traded up to a double digit premium rating. So quite a bit of share price volatility coming through. And of course, the reason people look to this particular trust now, the merged vehicle, is because it has a good track record of uh, being very resilient when the market is falling or people think it's going to be weak. So people go there for defensive reasons. Uh, uh, That's right. I mean, it doesn't uh, make a huge return. What actually is the track record over, say, five years? So if you look at the five years NAV return for the sterling share class, that's up 52%. So, you know, that's a very respectable return given the, the asset class and the strategy. Um, But over the last 12 months, that shorter time period, it's up 4%. So as I mentioned, it's had a quieter year. But there are times when this fund uh, has performed very, very strongly. And probably March last year, March 2020, being the obvious case in point where the market was clearly falling like a stone and that this one was going the other direction. So I think a lot of people would see it as as a good diversifier. Yeah. And that's where most of that performance came from, I think. Yeah. So let's move on and talk about Chrysalis Investments, ticker CHRY. We know they were looking to uh, raise some money. How did that go? Well, they were successful. They managed to raise some money. They, to be more precise, they raised £60 million through a placing and a primary bid offer. They issued just a little bit more than 25 million shares at a price of uh, £2.38. 
uh, and those shares began trading on the 15th of December. But that 60 million represented a lower level than they'd mentioned. Uh, they talked about raising 125 million to allow it to provide some follow-on capital to the existing portfolio. And they were also talking about raising additional capital to uh, put some more ideas into the portfolio. So they've fallen short on that basis. Uh, and in fact, they made it clear in the announcement that the proceeds from this particular raise are expected to be deployed in follow-on investments for existing portfolio companies. So perhaps not a surprise given what we've seen in the markets over the last few weeks. I think when they announced this, then it was probably just shortly before Omicron raised its ugly head. And in fact, if you look at the share price, as I mentioned, they issued those shares at uh, £2.38. The share price is a bit south of that, so probably more like £2.29, which begs the question, how did they raise money at all? But for some investors, no doubt this provided a bit of a liquidity event. And uh, certainly some of the money that came in appears to have come from other Jupiter funds as well. I guess the interesting issue, I suppose, for people who don't follow investor trust that closely is, okay, you're trying to do a placing and uh, and suddenly the market gets a bit choppy. Is there not any sort of flexibility in the process? You issue the placing at a price, the market moves against you or in favour of you. You would think that uh, putting money into these things is a, is a long-term thing. Well, so why would an external event, particularly one which is going to be very short-lived, have such an impact on demand? Well, let's hope it's a short-term event, obviously. Um, but I think as a rule, trying to raise additional money at a price that's higher than the price that the secondary market is providing becomes a very difficult thing. So to the point of chrysalis, uh, I mean, that issue price of £2.38, as I said, it's it's on my screen today, it's £2.29, and, and it's been at that kind of level over the last week or so. So that just becomes very difficult because people say, well, why am I paying a premium to what I can buy in the secondary market? Now, what you don't know in the secondary market is how much stock might be available at that particular price. But I think psychologically, it does become quite a hurdle uh, for investors or potential investors to get over it. Now, clearly, some do look through that. And, and obviously, in this case, in point, some have. But I think ordinarily, most would struggle with that. Yeah, but if you're talking about a, you know, a few P, OK, of course, it matters. But uh, if the issuance isn't there, then you're not going to get that opportunity again to increase your holding unless somebody is selling to you. So anyway, it seems an interesting issue to me. But um, obviously, I'm well aware how these things work in practice. So they'll be disappointed, presumably, by this outcome. Yeah, look, I'm, the timing has not worked out for them, to be perfectly honest. I mean, that's out of their control, clearly. Look, I mean, they've got some capital now. They can, as they say, make follow-on investments, support their existing portfolio companies. But at the same time, I think the portfolio is around about 15 holdings or so at the moment, and they have a range, a target range of between 15 and 20. So I suspect there is appetite for the investment managers to expand that portfolio out, to build that portfolio out. Now, how could they do it? Well, they could raise additional capital in the new year, or they could have a successful liquidation of, a, of an existing portfolio company and then recycle some of that capital. But I think you get the impression they would like to, to broaden out their existing existing platform. So I suppose it is quite important what the reasons are that uh, the share price has moved against them, because otherwise, I mean, they could just wait till the share price comes back up again and they could have another go in the new year. Is that possible? Or do these things sort of leave a bit of a shadow over the company's fundraising efforts? I don't think so. I mean, look, Chrysalis has been hugely successful over a number of years and it raised £300 million back in March. I mean, as I said, I just think they've, they're probably victims of very unfortunate timing given the events of the last few weeks that I think have caught pretty much everybody unawares and, and they just happened to be out at that moment in time. There was always somebody likely to be out you know, at any moment in time and it just happened to be them. So I don't think people will have a, a read across and think that somehow what Chrysalis are doing is broken in any way, shape or form. But as I say, they've got some capital now that gives them a bit of firepower to support their existing 
portfolio companies. And if they can prove that they're still seeing opportunity, then who's to say they won't be successful next year in raising additional capital? Okay, so let's move on and talk about results now. We're going to kick off by talking about BMO Global Smaller Companies. That's a ticker BGSC. And they've had some interim results out for the six months to the 31st of October. That's right, in which time their NAV total return came in at 5.6%, so in positive territory. That compared with 4.3% for their benchmark, which is a hybrid uh, 30% UK, 70% um, world index. So this, as the name would suggest, invests in global smaller companies. Their share price was a little bit disappointing, actually. It came in just in slightly negative territory, down 0.1% on a total return basis. And that was a reflection of the fact the discount widened over that six-month period. But it's an interesting story. I mean, Peter Ewings, the manager at BMO, very experienced investment manager, gave some commentary around what had worked for him in this period. So healthcare stocks were, were certainly positive, not owning biotechs. That was also positive, as were a number of financials holdings. They also uh, benefited from a bit of M&A activity in the UK. And the UK represents, or UK small companies represent about 28% of the portfolio. Okay, well, let's move on and talk about uh, Majedi Investments. We obviously mentioned them very recently because of the corporate developments there. But uh, let's talk about their results here. Ticker M-A-J-E. Uh, and they've had annual results to the 30th of September. That's right, in which time their NAV total return came in at 22.5%. That was slightly behind the FTSE All Share. That was up 27.9% in that 12-month period. But it was ahead of the MSCI All Country World Index, which was up 22.1%. However, in share price terms, they did a lot better, actually, up 37.1%. So I think we talked quite a bit about Majedi investments in general last week. But Effectively, there's a lot of the portfolio is exposed to funds managed by Majedi Asset Management, uh, who've obviously been in the news uh, because of the potential acquisition by Lion Trust. And all those Majedi Asset Management funds performed well. I think only one marginally underperformed in that particular period. However, I suppose the detractor on performance was the actual uh, stake that Majedi Investments has in Majedi Asset Management. So they own 17.6% of that business. And that represents about 14% of net assets. And that valuation was reduced over the 12 months from 31 million to 25 million. And that was just a reflection of the fall of assets under management in that period of time. But subsequent to that, obviously, we've seen the Lion Trust deal pop up. And again, that's at a slightly lower price than what they're holding at the book. But there's a deferred element to that as well. Let's talk next about what we now have to call MIGO Opportunities Trust, ticker M-I-G-O which used to be known as Mighton Global Opportunities Trust. This one is always of interest to uh, investment trust aficionados because the uh, the manager, Nick Greenwood, and his colleague, Charlotte Cuthbertson, only invest in other investment trusts. So it's very interesting to see what they're doing. They specialize in looking at some of the more obscure opportunities that are out there in the investment trust sector. Anyway, what do their results look like, Simon? Yeah, a good set of results given their benchmarks. Let's run through the numbers. These were interim results six months to the end of October. NAV total return up 10.5%. That compared with 1% for their benchmarks, worth mentioning that's the Sonia three-month plus 2% index. The share price total return came in about 10.1%, as well as the discount uh, just widened out slightly. But you're absolutely right. I mean, very good commentary from the investment managers in terms of what they're seeing in terms of opportunities across the investment company sector, what worked for them in the period. So things like Dunedin Enterprise uh, was positive, Geiger Counter, uh, MB Private Equity, Oakley Capital, so a couple of the private equity names 
Um, they talk a bit about Third Point as well, which is another investment company that we talked an awful lot about this year, and they've certainly benefited from that one. Names that weren't quite so good for them in the period included Baker Steel Resources Trust and Henderson Opportunities. But as always, uh, lots of insight into the investment companies and where they're seeing uh, opportunities at the moment. Well, that gives me a good excuse just to mention that, uh, as some of you may have seen, the annual Investment Trust Handbook, which I produce the partnership with the financial publishers Harriman House, has been published or has come out today. It is available in hardback and there's also a free ebook download. Happy to say there's been a very strong uh, response to this year's edition. There'd be more than a thousand downloads so far already in the first week, which is, uh, I think, we're pretty pleased with that. And uh, one of the contributors in this year's edition is uh, Nick Greenwood, the manager of MyGo Opportunities Trust. He takes part in uh, Investor Forum that I run every year for the handbook. And there is another contributor who is Simon Elliott, who's head of investment trust research at Winterfeld Securities. You might have heard of him. He's done a Q&A about what, uh, what happened last year and what's going to happen next year, or what he thinks might happen next year, I should say, just to be clear about that. So uh, that's all going pretty well. And uh, if you're interested in investment trust, of course, I would say that this is an outstanding publication, but I would say that, of course. Anyway, moving on, let's talk about Securities Trust of Scotland, ticker STS, uh, who've also had some results up. That's right. Interim results for the six months to the end of September. In that time, their NAV total return came in at 6.3%. That was just slightly ahead of their benchmark return of 6%. In share price terms, that came in at 6.8% as the discount just narrowed slightly. But uh, interesting update. I mean, this investment trust moved across to Troy Asset Management in November last year. So it's just over a year or so they've had this one. Now, James Harris responsible for this one. Just to remind people, it's got very much a a focus on quality companies, uh, a preference for companies that don't need excessive amounts of capital to operate, and also focus as perhaps unsurprising given the the Troy hallmark on capital preservation. James is certainly, uh, given his commentary, quite worried about inflation. And also during this period, the the portfolio was very much positioned or repositioned uh, for dividend growth from a lower level. Uh, And it's also worth noting in terms of the yield on this one, they've maintained their dividend at 2.75p. Okay, so still early days to judge the impact of that uh, change in management there. We have a pretty good idea what uh, Troy will be doing, given their very consistent mandate in other areas. Let's move on and talk about a UK trust now. And we're going to kick off with Artemis Alpha, ticker ATS. And they've had their interim results for the six months ending the 31st of October in which time they saw their NAV decline. It was down 5.4%, that compared with a rise of 5.4% for the FTSE All Share. Uh, Share price terms, not quite so bad, actually, just down 2.1%. But the performance was impacted by some of the fund's more cyclical holdings, so names such as EasyJet, Ryanair, IWG, some of the the pandemic winners of last year that have fared not quite so strongly this year. So that would be Just Eat, Hornby, Delivery Hero in Nintendo, and also UK house builders didn't work for them particularly well in this time. Um, they've also got, despite the fact they're focused essentially or largely on UK equities, they have got some Chinese technology companies in the portfolio, such as Alibaba and uh, Process, and they also provided a bit of a drag. But uh, Kartik Kumar and John Dodd, responsible for this one, focus portfolio, only 25 holdings or so. And again, trying to do something a little bit different. And in terms of the market performance, the rating of this trust, I mean, it has come a long way in from the big discount it was uh, trading at, uh, which prompted the change in uh, strategy and management a few years ago. But where have they got to in terms of that now? 
So they're trading on about a 5% discount now, and it wasn't that long ago. You're absolutely right. That would be mid-teens or probably heading out towards 20%. So we have seen uh, a re-rating, and there have been moments when this one has performed quite well. As I said, they've certainly just struggled a little bit of late, and given the way the portfolio is set up, that's probably not a surprise. But if you look at the numbers over the last three years, they've generated an NAV total return of 34%. That compares with a rise of 23% uh, for the FTSE All Share. And that's despite the fact that they have lagged over the last 12 months. Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, one of the other interests in trusts like this, as with the uh, Securities Trust of Scotland, is that, uh, you know, these uh, are managed by what are still young men in investment terms. And they potentially could be, you know, fund manager stars of the future or not, depending how well they perform. But it's always, uh, I find it always interesting to keep uh, track of some of these younger fund managers who are trying to make their way in this business. And uh, Kartik Kumar would be a good case in point. I'd be surprised if he's more than half my age anyway, which is uh, not saying anything. Uh, Moving on quickly to uh, Finsbury Growth and Income, ticker FGT, which is managed by Nick Train, another gentleman who I I guess is more of my vintage than of Kartik's vintage. And they've had their final results for the year to the 30th of September. And as we were saying last week, it's been uh, it's been quite a tough time for Nick Train and Mike Linzel in terms of relative performance with their particular growth style. But uh, how did uh, Finsbury Growth and Income get on over this period? So they generated positive returns. So the NAV total return was up 10.6%. However, to your point, that represented underperformance against the FTSE All Share, which was up 27.9% in that year. So um, significant relative underperformance. In share price terms, that came in at 6.3%. So the investment trust has been derated. We have seen it move from a premium to a discount. And in that 12-month time, the detractors from performance included holdings such as London Stock Exchange, which was a very successful holding or has been over recent years. Uh, It's given some of that performance back this year in 2021. Uh, And Unilever as well, again, performed well in 2020, less so this year. But in terms of those names in the portfolio that have worked, that would include Diageo, Relex and Schroders. And in the report, the chairman made the comment that the course Finsbury Growth and Income has performed very well over the long term. It's outperformed in 16 of the last 20 financial years. It's also worth noting the dividend as well. That was increased. It moved from 16.6p to 17.1p. And that was covered by the revenue return per share that came in at 18.1%. But it's a very focused portfolio. The 17 largest holdings represent 98% of the portfolio. The emphasis remains very much on good businesses, strong brands, powerful franchises, but a very interesting investment manager's report from Nick Train. I think he starts it off by talking about how he's engaged in some navel gazing. (laughs) Yes, that's the kind of thing he does. I remember very well the first time I met him, he was very... uh intense and takes it very seriously, though, uh, as indeed he should. Well, it's interesting, is, uh, is a 5% or, or whatever it is discount, that's pretty unusual for this trust, if we exclude the pandemic sell-off last year, is it or not? What's the history on that? No, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, for a number of years, it has traded on a premium rating, and that's allowed it to issue quite a large number of shares and really build the fund out, increase its liquidity and the rest of it. So yes, that is unusual. I mean, again, to put some numbers around it, over the last 12 months, the average discount Finsbury Growth and Income comes in about 1.8%. So the fact that it's now about 5% is quite marked. And it's worth noting as well that, again, over the years, the investment trust has had this policy that it would seek subject to normal market conditions and all the rest of it. It was minded to protect the discount around 5%. It's not a hard and fast, but it's it's quite clear that 
uh, that's a level that they're prepared to support with buybacks. And we've certainly seen buybacks pick up for Finsbury Growth and Income in recent months. Yeah, it has been a fantastic performer uh, over the years. And uh, I suppose one of the questions is, is this an opportunity for people who uh, want to add some more in this strategy? But uh, the, I guess the question mark is over the kind of uh, growth, the quality growth approach that uh, Nick Drain has. He's a long-term holder of companies with strong economic fundamentals. And that's uh, the last decade, one has to say, of falling interest rates has been very favourable to that. Uh, there's a certain correlation there, at least. So I guess there is some question if we are going into a, a rising interest rate environment, whether that will dampen the potential for returns at all from this. But the track record, as you say, is terrific. So one to watch there, I think, in terms of discounts. Uh, let's move on and talk about Oryx International Growth Fund, ticker OIG. They've had some interim results. That's right. Interim results for the six months to the end of September, in which time they saw their NAV increase by about 14.1% and in share price terms up nearly 21%. So they had a few winners in the portfolio during this time. So Orgeum, which I think we talked about a few times because that's that's been in Gresham House Strategic as well, but Orgeum returned 75% in the period after a cash bid. They also saw strong performances from Circassia and Hargreaves Services. But it's, a, it's an interesting portfolio. Christopher Mills of Harwood Capital is responsible for this one. It's very much focused on mid and small caps, both private companies and public listed companies. There'll be a slant towards public listed companies in terms of the weighting. But they do have some private companies. Some have worked quite well for them. Some have obviously struggled a little bit. So we saw a write-off in the form of trade-wise in the period. But equally following the period end, uh, there was another company called Antler Hortcoal that saw interest from Aberdeen. So it's a very much a stock picker's portfolio, this one. Let's move on then to talk about Schroeder UK Midcap, ticker SCP. They've had annual results for the year ended the 30th of September. There aren't that many UK Midcap trusts, but uh, tell us how this one did and uh, how did it compare to the JP Morgan Trust? So the answer is they performed well, actually. They had an NAV total return up just short of 42%. That represented an outperformance of their benchmark, the FTSE 250X Investment Trust Index, that was up just short of 41%. But actually, it was the share price uh, that really caught the eye. They're up 62.6% on a share price total return basis in that year. And that was a reflection of the fact the discount narrowed from 19% to 8%. So the names that worked for them, that would be holdings such as Grafton, Man Group, Reed Northgate, uh, while they had some detractors as well. It was there with us, Dunelm, Pets at Home, and Games Workshop. So a relatively focused portfolio, about 50 holdings or so at the end of September. Andy Bruff and Jean Roche, a very experienced investment management team. And in terms of how it compares to the competitors in this particular area, I mean, who do you compare this, this kind of trust to? Obviously, there's the FTSE 250 index is, uh, is, is the main benchmark. But in terms of the competition, I mean, what trust can one realistically uh, look to compare this one against? Yeah, I mean, we do something a little bit different to the AIC Stats Committee on this, so whisper it softly, clearly. You're a dissident on the committee you're on. Oh, my God, how splendid to hear that. <laughs> we like to show our individuality, <laughs> uh, but we have a separate UK mid-cap subsector uh, in which we have three investment trusts, being the Shredder UK mid-cap fund, the JP Morgan mid-cap fund, and we also put Mercantile in there as well, which, to be fair, Mercantile's mandate is the FTSE All Share X, FTSE 100, so it's mid and small cap, but actually, the reality is it's quite largely skewed to the mid-cap. So in terms of those three investment trusts, who has the bragging rights? So if you look at it on a five-year NAV total return basis, Mercantile is top of the pops at the moment, at 73% return. Schroeder, uh, not too far behind it, 66%. And the JP Morgan mid-cap fund, up 63%. 
more recently, there's not an awful lot in it, actually. But suffice to say, over that five-year time period, they've all outperformed the FTSE 250. So significant outperformance. And yet you can buy them on, what, 10% discount, that sort of thing, double-digit discount at the moment? Yeah, that's right. I mean, they're all trading around about an 11% discount, absolutely. Right. So all those people who are out there saying that the UK looks very cheap, you know, compared to other markets, they haven't been rushing in this direction, at least, as far as those discounts are concerned. I mean, that presumably is quite close to their historic low point, isn't it? Or- well, what we've seen this year is we did see the discounts, and this is true of the mid-cap and the small-cap space, really tightening at the start of the year. I think as everyone got quite excited that we were about to see this wonderful economic recovery in the UK, which we have obviously to an extent, but more recently, we have seen those discounts widen out again and, and again for quite obvious reasons. But in terms of where those mid-cap funds have traded historically, it's been quite a range, actually. I mean, I think people see them as rightly or wrongly, is quite economically sensitive to UK PLC. Although actually, if you look at the, the names of the portfolio and all the investment managers involved in this space will make the point that actually, there's a lot of those companies that they may be UK listed, but there's a lot of overseas earnings coming through. So clearly, some economic sensitivity to the UK, but that's not the full story. But even so, I think people do see it as a bit of a proxy. And at the moment, we see them on double digit discounts. Of course, there's quite a lot of uh, investment trusts in the FTSE 250 index. So uh, they're fishing in a pool, which is a little bit smaller than the 250 index itself. Yeah. So just to make it clear, all those three names, they would exclude investment trust companies from their own invoice. So they're looking at the FTSE 250. And let's assume, I don't know, I should know the number off the top of my head, but I'm going to say it'd be something like 30 or 40 of those names will be investment trust companies in a number of names that we will talk about today. So when you exclude it down, you're looking at not too far off, probably 200 names. But the FTSE 250 is a very interesting index in its own right. I believe that it has benefited hugely and it has performed very well over the long term, but I believe it's benefited hugely by the fact that when something performs well, invariably it ends up in the FTSE 100 by dint of its size. And so you almost kind of lock in profits at that level. Whereas at the same time, you're getting the best performance from the small cap promoted up and you get those kind of fallen angels falling down from the FTSE 100 that uh, invariably you can see quite a bounce back. So I think it's quite a fertile area of the market, if you put it in those terms. Okay, so let's go on and talk about the overseas markets now. And uh, we're going to kick off with uh, Aberdeen New Dawn, ticker ABD. They've had interim results uh, to the 31st of October. In which time they saw an NAV total return down about point. 7% 7% or so, which represented a relative outperformance. The MSCI or country Asia-Pacific ex-Japan index was down 4.7 in that time. Uh, in share price terms, they came in at negative 2.5% as just the discount widened out a little bit. But quite a lot of commentary from the, the investment managers, so it's James Thong and Gabriel Sachs. Obviously, as you might imagine, a lot of talk about China uh, and what happened to the portfolio as a result of those regulatory uncertainties. And it did hit some of their holdings in the portfolio, so Tencent, China Resources, Land, Ping An Insurance. But actually, overall, their exposure to China actually contributed positively. And they had a number of holdings that did well for them. And in fact, it's worth noting that Aberdeen have built up quite a a capability in the Asia market, which tend to be the smaller Chinese companies, probably a little bit more domestically focused. And that certainly seems to have held them in good stead in this period. But in addition to that, they've also benefited for their exposure to India and a number of other holdings as well. It's probably also worth noting that the board intends to change the fund's name and it will become Aberdeen One Val New Dawn Investment Trust to take effect after the end of the current financial year. And apparently shareholder approval is not required. 
Indeed, we can only speculate how the shareholders would have reacted. We have seen that proposed at other Aberdeen trusts, of course, and uh, they have always nodded it through, I think. But anyway, let's move on and talk about Atlantis Japan Growth Fund, ticker AJG. This is a trust that, to my knowledge, has been around for an awfully long time. What have their results been like? So these were interim results for the six months to the end of October. In that time, they saw an MEV total return of 5.5%. That compared with a rise of 3% for the benchmark. We did see the discount widen out a little bit to about 12%. But it's very much focused on Japanese smaller companies. So there's some very stock-specific things going on here. So there's a number of companies, a number of holdings that performed well in the period uh, and a number that did not quite so well. But uh, an experienced investment manager Teiko Seteishi has been responsible for this one for over five years. Okay, moving on then, we're going to go to, uh, well, not very far, to JP Morgan Japanese, ticker JFJ. They've had final results, and these are to the 30th of September, so they've taken a bit more time to get those together. What do they show? So in that time, they generated an NAV total return of 10.7%. That represented a bit of an underperformance against the Topics Index. That was up 15.3% in that time. The share price total return came in at about 11%. So what happened really for this one is that we saw an underperformance in the first half of the year. At that stage, the market had a preference for more cyclical and value companies, and that's not where JP Morgan Japanese is. It's very much focused on quality growth stocks. And so that acted as a hindrance, although they picked it up in the second half of the year. But at the end of September, they had about 60 or so holdings. And some of the key investment themes included digitalization and renewable energy. They also had gearing about 13% at the end of that period. We've also had results from another JP Morgan uh, Japanese trust, which is JP Morgan Japan Small Cap Growth and Income ticker JSGI. They've had uh, interim results, so not directly comparable with the uh, JP Morgan Japanese Trust. No, that's right. So these are interim results for the six months to the end of September. In that time, they generated NAV total return about 7.2%. That compared with a rise of 4.9% for the MSCI Japan Small Cap Index. In share price terms, they did a little bit better, actually. They came in about 9.1%. And that was a reflection of the fact that the discount narrowed during that period. So both stock selection and sector allocation had a positive impact on relative performance. A number of stocks worked for them quite well. But in terms of a sector level, the top contributors included their overweight position in commercial and professional services and at the same time being underweight banks. But it's also worth noting as well that this is one of the enhanced dividend investment trusts. And obviously, there are a number of those within the JP Morgan stable. The idea is that in this particular case, they pay out 1% of the NAV each quarter. So the two dividends declared in this particular period were 5.5p and 5.8p, respectively. There's been a tough year for Japanese funds in general. Japanese market has been disappointing. So has there been any movement in the ratings of the Japanese trusts that we should uh, take note of? I think yes is the answer. I mean, so we split Japan into some of the kind of more general, so the ones that are focused more on the large cap, and then we look at the Japanese small cap separately. But across the large cap end, the average rating is is somewhere about 4 or 5% or so, but there is a range. So Bailey Gifford Japan, which has always had a high rating, that's probably trading around NAV at the moment, but you are seeing a number on double-digit discounts. So that would include Schroeder Japan growth, probably on about 11% or so at the moment, CC Japan income and growth, probably about 10%, and Aberdeen Japan on 13%. So the JP Morgan Japanese fund, that's on about a 5% discount. Now that's broadly in line where we've seen it over the previous 12 months. 
But as I say, it has got that kind of quality growth focus, which at some stages will work well in its favour and at other times will act as a hindrance. Okay, so we're going to move on to talk about some of these specialist trusts now. And we're going to kick off by talking about GCP infrastructure, ticker GCP. We've already talked about uh, GCP Student Living, which is another trust managed by the same firm. But they had this takeover approach, which has been accepted. So they're disappearing. But tell us about GCP infrastructure. What are their annual results been like? So these were annual results to the end of September, in which time they generated an NAV total return of about 7.2%. Although actually it's worth noting in share price terms, they were down 7.9%. So uh, that was a reflection of the fact that they were derated. Their their premium was eroded during that time. So what we saw in terms of the NAV performance is that they actually benefited from uh, near-term electricity future prices in the second half of the period. And that offset the impact of lower electricity forecast prices in the first half of the period. They declared dividends in total of 7p, and that represented a decline on 7.6p for the previous financial year. Um, but it's worth noting that that dividend of 7p was 0.99 times covered on an earnings basis, so pretty much covered, and actually 1.1 times covered on an adjusted net earnings cover basis. They've also made it clear that their dividend target for their next financial year is also 7p, in other words, unchanged. But it's also worth noting that there's an agreement to dispose of an offshore wind farm uh, following the year end. And that came in a 12% premium to fair value, which the manager believes demonstrates the conservative approach to renewables valuation. And that's something that I think a lot of people have commented on in recent years, and possibly with a view to justifying the premium ratings that many renewable energy infrastructure funds trade on. It's interesting you say about uh, these results and the rating of this trust, because it is one of the lower rated trusts in the infrastructure sector, I think. And as a result, or perhaps associated with that, it also has one of the highest dividend yields. So what do you think the story is? I mean, there's this wide range of ratings in the infrastructure sector. And is that really just about quality or is it about other performance or what? What are, what are the driving factors here? I mean, I think there are a number of things. I think it's worth noting in the case of GCP infrastructure, it's effectively infrastructure debt. So when we look at that, when we compare it with Sequoia Economic Infrastructure, which is, again, infrastructure debt. And if you look at those two funds, Sequoia is on about a 4% premium, whereas GCP infrastructure, I've got it at the moment on my screen, about 5%. So they're not dissimilar levels. So although obviously the historic dividend yield is 6% plus in, in both instances, then you're not paying up as much in terms of the premium. So that's the point I wanted to bring out there, that there are differences between these infrastructure trusts. That one, Some of them are investing in debt, some of them are investing in uh, what I would like to call real world projects with uh, physical attributes, shall we say. And that allows me to mention that this week in the uh, Moneymakers Circle, we have a profile of uh, worldwide healthcare. I've also done an interview with the manager of Biopharma Credit, which is not in the infrastructure debt, but it is another debt fund. The debt sector is very interesting, but it's quite complicated stuff. And I find it very useful to have this conversation with the people at Biopharma Credit, which is a, basically specializes in lending only to companies in the life sciences business, if you're interested in that at all. You can find that uh, on the Moneymakers website. Let's talk next about uh, Henderson Diversified Income Trust, ticker HDIV. What have they had to say this week? Interesting development on this one. So we had interim results for the six months to the end of October, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 1.9%. That compared to a rise of 1.3% for their benchmark. In share price terms, they ended up in negative territory. They were down 2.7% as the discount widened to nearly 9%, although they did maintain the dividend level at 2.2p. 
But that's only part of the story because they've also published a circular recommending an amended investment objective, and that incorporates ESG principles and also changing the fund's objective. And that will be subject to a vote at a general meeting in February. But the chairman made the point in the results that actually the potential for capital gains in this asset class is now low, particularly given low interest rates. And so really the emphasis should be on a high level of income and capital preservation. So interesting that the the objective will be changed to reflect that and those ESG principles. So we're going to move on and talk about ESG. We're going to mention Jupiter Green Investment Trust, JGC, which has also had some interim results. And this trust has been around for quite a long time, but uh, hasn't always capitalized on the kind of ESG sustainable mandates that uh, people are looking for these days. But uh, how are they doing according to their latest results? Well, these were interim results for the six months to the end of September. They generated an NAV total return of 4.6% during that time. That compared with a rise of 6.7% for their benchmark, which is the MSCI World Small Cap Total Return Index. In share price terms, a little bit disappointing. Actually, it came in uh, negative uh, 2.4%. But it is an interesting mandate. As the name would suggest, it's very much on companies that they describe as those that are innovators and innovating technological solutions to sustainability challenges and companies that are already rapidly delivering sustainable solutions. But uh, many of the companies in the portfolio are small cap companies, so probably less well known. And obviously, during that period, a number performed well, a number struggled. But John Wallace has taken over the mandate of this one. He was uh, appointed as the lead manager back in February this year. Yes, and it remains quite a small trust. Where does the committee, AOC committee, choose to put this one? Who else is in that sector and how do they compare? Well, we compare it against Impacts Environmental, which is, I think, quite a well-known and quite a large fund, and also Manhattan Resource Efficiency. So we have a kind of environmental subsector. I can't tell you off the top of my head what the AIC Stats Committee do, but I'm sure it's absolutely appropriate. But within those three investment trusts that we look at, I mean, the best performer has been Impacts Environmental. Over the last five years, it's generated an NAV total return of 115%. Jupiter Green Investment Trust is coming at 71% over that same time. So we'll move on and talk about Polar Capital Global Healthcare, ticker PCGH. They've had some annual results. And this also, I should mention, is uh, featured in this year's uh, Investment Trust Handbook. So they announced annual results to the end of September. Their NAV total return came in at 19.5%. That represented an outperformance of the MSCI or Countrywide Healthcare Index. That was up 13.4%. And in share price terms, it was even stronger, actually. They came in 24.6% on a total return basis. Uh, They did particularly well in the second half of the year as mid to large cap stocks moved back into favour. And certainly they saw strong contributions from their allocation to life sciences, tools and services, pharmaceuticals and managed care, as well as some of their stock selection in life sciences, tools and services. So a good period of performance. It's also worth noting as well that they declared dividends of 2p in respect to that financial year. Okay, so we'll talk about another Polar Capital Trust. This is perhaps the better known Polar Capital Technology Trust, ticker PCT, managed by Ben Rogoff and his uh, colleagues. What have their interim results looked like? It's been obviously not quite as good a year as the year before, but uh, uh, what, what do the numbers look like here? Yeah, so this is for the six months to the end of October. The NAV total return came in at 11.5%. That represented a slight underperformance. The benchmark was up 13.3%. And actually, in share price terms, they came in at 6.3%. It's the discount widened to nearly 10%. 
So the detractors from performance, well, they were holding a bit of cash actually in this period, probably an average cash position of about 4.6%, in addition to which they had a put option on the NASDAQ as well. So effectively some portfolio protection. But that was offset by being underweight Asia and obviously uh, in particular China, which, as we know, saw regulatory crackdowns during that time. So that certainly worked for them. But yeah, a quieter period of performance compared with last year, certainly. In terms of the rating, I mean, the discount at that kind of level, that's been pretty unusual for this trust, I think, over the last uh, recent period. Would I be right about that? Or is that more in, in line with its average? I've got them on about a 6% discount or so at the moment. That compares with an average probably nearer to 8% over the previous 12 months. But it has seen a bit of discount volatility. I mean, it's been as narrow as a 1% discount and equally it's been as wide as an 11% discount. So, you know, technology has had a bit of a roller coaster ride over the last 12 months. And then we'll talk about Taylor Maritime Investments, ticker TMI, which is a a relatively recent newcomer to the market. Uh, They've had some interim results from the date of their IPO. So tell us about those. Have they delivered? In that period, so from the 27th of May to the end of September, uh, they have delivered, actually. The NAV total return was up 43%, and that compares with the target returns of 10 to 12% per annum. Now, clearly, this is a very, very short period of performance, but it just shows what's going on at the underlying level. And in fact, they made the point that actually that performance has been driven by the strong appreciation in the value of the vessels they've acquired. So they've been quite busy deploying their capital. They've, in fact, acquired nine vessels since the IPO, and that takes the fleet out to 32. They've also declared a quarterly dividend of 1.75 cents, and their dividend cover for their full financial year is forecast to be 3.9 times. So that is quite a high level of dividend cover, and they made the point there is the potential for an extraordinary dividend if that strong market persists. But we've also heard this week that the fund has actually agreed to acquire a 22.6% stake in a listed company called Grindrod Shipping Holdings. That's listed in, on NASDAQ and the Johannesburg Stock Exchange as well. And this will be a private deal. It's an off-market acquisition with a cash consideration of just short of $78 million. But that's quite a big stake to take in a listed company. It will take them up to just short of 25%. But they're actually funded that acquisition by the sale of two Chinese-built vessels for just short of $43 million. So this one has made a pretty spectacular start to life as a listed investment trust. Obviously, we know that a lot of this inflation that is uh, being seen around the world is driven by supply shortages. And it's been a boom time for the shipping industry, uh, which is a very cyclical industry linked to uh, the global economy. But uh, it's been very up and down, hasn't it? I seem to remember not that long ago, it was trading on a really chunky premium. So what's going on there? It's a good point. I mean, we have seen quite a bit of share price volatility on this one. I mean, I've got it on a 6% discount at the moment on a share price of about $1.30. But over its period since launch, it's been out on a premium probably north of 20% at one stage. But equally, it's been out to a discount of about 14 15%. So there is a lot of share price volatility with this one. Right. So <laughs> there's either opportunity or, or risk, one of the two involved in this uh, sector. But shipping is a very cyclical business, as we know. But this company is uh, leasing vessels. And it's a welcome return of shipping to the uh, investment trust market, I think it's fair to say. There used to be some shipping investment trusts back in the long, long day anyway. It's a long time, perhaps, since we've seen some shipping trusts. But they've come back and they made a good start, obviously. 
We've got one more trust to talk about, which is Hypnosis Songs Fun. We can't get to the end of uh, the pre-Christmas period without mentioning our old friends in the music royalty business. Before we get that, though, every year, as I mentioned last week, Winterflood Security has come up with this rather tricky quiz that they put out to their clients. It reflects the very strange and wondrous way in which uh, investment trust analysts view the world and their respective interests. But I'm going to ask Simon to give us a sample question from this year's quiz. I'm not going to allow him to give you the answer because that would be unfair to those who still haven't got their answers in, which is due by uh, Monday, I think. So give us a question and we'll leave it with our listeners to see if they know the answer to this one. Okay, well, this is a question that's in the music section and it's regard to an event or something that happened in the music business industry this year. And the question is, visitors who took 40 years to make return trip. Okay, I'll leave that little conundrum with you. And now we're going to finish off by talking about Hypnosis Songs Fund, ticker S-O-N-G. They've had some interim results. We've uh, talked an awful lot about some of the deals they've done this year, but uh, what's actually been happening to the value of the trust, or at least the reported NAV? This was an interesting update, actually. So this is six months to the end of September. The operative NAV was up 2.5% in that period. So the Operative NAV total return came in at 4.6%, and that included fully covered dividends, which totaled 2.625p. And in fact, the board continues to target a full year dividend of 5.25p. Like for like portfolio valuation uplift, that came in at 3%. And actually, the portfolio of all the catalogues in aggregate valued at 2.55 billion US dollars now, which is an incredible catalogue that's been built up in a very short period of time, under four years. And in fact, during this particular period, they've acquired eight catalogues, which uh, again were valued at 260 million pounds. So overall now, I think there are 146 catalogues within Hypnosis Songs Funds. Uh, And in fact, they are providing more and more detail uh, in terms of the portfolio, I think, including the fact that they own 51 of Rolling Stone magazine's 500 greatest songs of all time and 10 of the top 30 YouTube's most viewed videos of all time. But it was also interesting to note that some of the performance income, which is one of the elements that they receive, was actually down nearly 20% in the period. And that's a reflection of COVID-19, the impact of the pandemic. And uh, the investment team made the point that there is obviously a time lag between the consumption of songs and the royalty statements being processed. So you'd always do get this time lag with this music royalties business. But overall, as I mentioned, they're still talking very positively, fully covered dividend, still looking at that dividend target of 5.25p. Uh, and of course, one of the songs they do have in their portfolio is Mariah Carey's classic, All I Want for Christmas is You. Well, how appropriate that is as we come to the end of this particular podcast. I suppose I should finish by asking about songs performance because there was a lot of muttering from institutional shareholders about the lack of disclosure but there has been more information provided and the trust continues to perform well i mean uh, just tell us how it's done since uh, it was originally uh, launched i think it was back in 2018 wasn't it so i've got it on a price of 127p at the moment and certainly if you look over the last 3 years in nav total return terms i've got it up 41% So that would be in line with, I think, the kind of estimated target returns over that period. And it does continue to kind of push up. Um, I've got it trading around NAV at the moment, probably a small premium, about 1% or so. But it's got a a market cap of 1.5 billion in sterling. So it really has seen quite substantial growth and a historic yield of 4.1%. So it's certainly made a big splash. 
And uh, for the moment, at least, all those we heard from who were a little sceptical have had to fall back into line. So that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Thank you all very much for listening. And thank you all also for uh, supporting us throughout the year. It's been a lot of fun for us, and I hope it's been helpful and informative for you. There won't be any uh, chat with Simon next week. We won't be doing a weekly review next week because it will be Christmas week. But we will be putting out this uh, special Christmas podcast featuring David Locke, who's the author of this book about Churchill and his money, which is, uh, I think I mentioned when I first mentioned it, that there are maybe some parallels with the current situation, but I'd leave you to draw those conclusions yourself. Uh, But we will be back in two weeks' time, where we're going to be uh, taking a look back at the year and talking about some of the best movers and performers over the period. Hopefully, uh, you'll be able to join us then. So that's all from us. Uh, Thank you, Simon, for all your input this year, and uh, good luck. Have a great Christmas. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.